Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome. I am Bryce Hoffman, president of Red Team Thinking and author of the book, Red Teaming. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. My name is Marcus Dimbleby, vice president at Red Team Thinking. Great to be back here with you once again. So, Bryce, what are we going to be discussing this week? I would like to discuss the three C's, if that's okay with you. The three C's? I'm pretty sure we mentioned that last time. Let's talk about those. What are the three C's? So the three C's are three concepts that we've come up with that we think are really essential to the success of any organization. And by any organization, I mean a company, a military unit, an NGO, a sports team, any organization needs the three C's. So what are the three C's? The three C's are clarity, capability, and culture. And the reason we think they're so important is because if you don't have all three of those, you're not going to be a high-performing organization that's doing its best, that's doing, that's functioning at its optimal peak efficiency. And I've seen this in so many companies back during my time as a business journalist, that companies get one or two of these things right, and they still stumble, they still fall on their face because they don't have all three. That's why we think it's so important. So why don't we start with the first one? The first C is clarity. And clarity is exactly what it sounds like. It's the ability to clearly perceive where you are at, where you are going, and what the impediments are that are keeping you from getting there. That's so important because something that, that you and I talk about all the time is that most organizations create a fog of BS around themselves, comforting lies that they tell themselves that insulate them, that protect them from the hard truths that they either don't want to look at or can't look at because looking at them would require them to act on those things. And they know that that's going to be hard or, or painful or just more than they want to handle at this time. So a great example of that is Ford Motor Company back in around 2000. So Jack Nasser was the CEO of Ford Motor Company then. Ford Motor Company had a boatload of money at the time because Americans were buying big pickups and big SUVs like they were going out of style, which in fact they would soon be going out of style, but that's a separate point. And so the company was just flush with cash and a lot of people said, this is great. We can use this opportunity to fix these, these generation long problems that have defied our best efforts to, to get this company competitive again with the Japanese and European automakers. We can spend this money to fix our structural issues, to modernize our factories, 
to 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 buy out our workforce because they had too many employees. All of this stuff we can do. And Jack Nasser came in as CAO. He opened the hood, the proverbial hood on on the Ford automobile, looked at the engine and said, oh, crap, that's a mess. And he slammed it shut and he took that money and he started investing in tech companies. He started investing in recycling companies. He started investing in all sorts of businesses that had nothing to do with fixing Ford's core problems because he didn't want to look. He couldn't look at that hard truth because it was too it was too much for him. And so he went and did something else with that money. Spent a lot of money, wasted a lot of money, didn't fix any of Ford's problems. You've seen that too in a lot of areas where you've worked, right, Marcus? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And then you talked about at the beginning, having these three C's is an essential requirement. You've got to have all three. You've got to have this holistic viewpoint. And as you said, if you only have one or two of them, you don't have the whole essential suite that's going to allow you to be successful. And we see this all the time when we talk about clarity. You know, the whole purpose of the executive, the board, the C-suite is to set the vision for the company and to then have absolute clarity on the mission, create the strategy and set that purpose for their workforce. But so often what we see, even when they do that, it's like just doing that doesn't mean everybody has clarity. You have to validate that people get it. People have understood it, absorbed it. Because I've so often seen organizations where, hey, we've got a great strategy. It's splattered all over the walls. It's all over the websites. Then you go and talk to the people at the coalface trying to do the job. And they have no idea what the strategy is. And there's a, there's a great story where you know, around 10 executives around the boardroom were asked to recite the strategy of the company, and only two of them could. And that were the two guys who wrote it. So it goes back to this just you know check understanding before you assume that people have taken on board what you've written. So once you've got that, it then goes into, as you said, clarity of what is it we're then actually trying to do at the team level. We've got to have total clarity on where we're going what it is we need to do to get there, and then how do we do that? And then that'll come on to the next bit of you know, capability we talked about. But I think it's so important that we see great teams, great individuals who are capable, but they don't have the clarity, the purpose, the understanding of where they're going and why they're going there. And if you don't have that, then people just go into almost paralysis or they get very demotivated because they don't see the purpose behind what it is they're trying to do. And I was, I was talking to some engineers a while ago, and they were talking about what they were developing. And they were super capable, but the, the team morale was just so low. And I went down and spent a few days and I said, what's the problem? They just said, we have no idea what we're doing this for. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's like, yeah, we, you know, we've got the product owner coming in saying we need these requirements, but nobody can answer us. Why? Who for? You know, I'd like to talk to the consumer. Who's going to be using this so I can see? And they were getting really passionate. And I was like, it's a real shame we don't see this passion that I'm seeing now. They said, I know, because we just become demoralized. We ask these questions, we get told to almost, you know, be quiet, just build it. But if you understand why you're doing something, it goes back to Simon Sinek. You know, start oh, with can, why, can I why. just jump in there, though? Absolutely. I, because I, I, when you were talking about those engineers and understanding why you're doing something and who you're doing it for, that that just reminded me of, of one of my favorite interviews that I did back in, gosh, it would have been the late 90s with the founders. You were old enough to be doing interviews back then. <laughs> oh, oh yes, on. I was. <laughs> uh, I was a tech reporter in Silicon Valley back in, in, in the late 90s covering the first 
the first dot-com boom. And remember the Palm Pilot? Oh, yes. Yep. So the, at that point, the Palm Pilot was all the rage. And I scored an interview. Hang on a minute. With, Explain to our listeners, viewers, what a Palm Pilot is. Not everybody's old as me and oh, you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, well, children, once upon a time, simpler time, before we had these, people carried phones around in their pockets that didn't do anything except call people. It was, it was hard. And then along came a company called Palm with a device that looked remarkably similar to this. And on this device, you could store your contacts, write notes, keep your calendar, keep your to-do list. You could do four things, notes, calendar, contacts, and to-do list. And that's going to be important about what I'm talking about with clarity here in a sec. So you also have to understand, Palm. so Palm was the first PDA, personal digital assistant, that was successful. Not the first PDA by a long shot. There had been a lot of false starts. A lot of companies had tried to launch similar products. Apple had launched the Newton, which was probably one of the biggest jokes that Apple ever, ever attempted. Uh, there were Casio, Sony, all sorts of companies had their versions of PDAs and they just didn't work. Microsoft was spending huge amount of mm -hmm. time, money, and energy trying to develop this. And, and, then, and, and, and none of them were anything other than things that, that you know, kind of geeks played with. They never caught on until the Palm Pilot. And when Palm Pilot came out, it caught on overnight to the point that if you did not have a Palm Pilot, you were out of the loop. I was at the time I was, I was, you know, working for a newspaper. And as soon as the Palm Pilot came out, I came home, I told my wife, I got to buy one of these things because every <laughs> CEO I meet, you know, is asking me like, instead of giving him a business card to, to beam my contact information to him, I need a Palm Pilot. So I, I, I got an interview with the, the, the founders, the, the creators of the Palm Pilot. And, and they were, you know, engineers. And the question, the first question I asked them is I said, you know, all of these other companies with huge engineering teams have been trying to do this for years and they've failed. Why have you succeeded where everyone else failed? And I will never forget their answer. They said, because everyone else looked at this problem as an engineer. And we looked at this problem from the point of view of the consumer, of the customer. Hang on a minute, Bryce. So you're telling me that somebody actually who was building a product put the customer first. Get out of town. Absolutely. That's exactly what they did. And they told me that this is, not, listen to this, this is an amazing story. They said, you know, the, when you approach the problem of building this personal digital assistant as an engineer. You look at the chip you have available, you look at the screen size and you say, wow, what could I do with this device? Oh, I could do contacts, I could do calendar. Oh, you know, maybe we could do some postage stamp size videos because in those days yeah. that was all I could manage. Oh, you know, let me put, we'll put, put some games on there. Oh, you know, it'd be cool is if we did, you know, and, and, and they just started adding dozens and dozens of little apps to the device, which strained its capabilities and divided their efforts 
because now they were splitting their team into all these sub teams to develop all these different apps and functions. And then they started adding buttons because like, oh, well, we should have a button that does this. Here's what the Palm folks did. The Palm folks, I believe it was three guys and a woman. They all engineers. They said to their, they said, let's design the device first, the form factor, not the guts, not the, not the chip, not the computer. Let's figure out the form factor. They asked their ergonomic experts, how many buttons could we comfortably fit on the bottom of this device? Because we were a long way from cool touchscreens then. And their ergonomic experts came back and they said, you could comfortably fit four buttons, two on either side of the main on off button. And they said, great. So then they got in front of a whiteboard and they said, if this device can only do four things, what are those four things going to be? And they said it didn't take them long to figure out what those four things were. A calendar, a contact book, a notepad, and a to-do list. And so they made a button for each one. There were no, there were no uh, icons on the screen because in those days, touchscreens weren't, yeah. weren't accurate enough to, to use that very well. And that was part of the problem with other devices. People would try to hunt around, try to activate icons. They wouldn't work half the time. So they said, we're going to put four physical buttons. They're going to work 100% of the time. And we're going to develop four apps that work perfectly. And that's all we're going to That to, to me do. sounds like clarity. Clarity on what it yep. is you're doing, who it is you're doing it for, and why you're doing it. And again, once you do that, you get things that work. It's amazing, isn't it? Sounds like Steve Jobs' previous story, you know, stop building so many things and just focus on a few things that you do well. And I was chatting today, one of my colleagues earlier today, one of his clients was just, he said, they're just drowning in busyness. And I thought, I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, they're all so busy. And I was like, yep, that's pretty standard. I said, talk to me, talk to me about it. And he said, I went and spoke to them all. I said, what are you all doing? He said, and none of them could give me clarity on what it is they were doing and how it all interlinked and what they were doing it for. And it goes back to your point, you know, just that simple what it is you're doing and the purpose of it. And if you can't answer that question, stop doing it and ask. Ask the question to gain clarity. So often doesn't happen. Well, that's what we do, right? That's what we do. We have, we have a tool that we call Six Strategic Questions. It's one of the tools that we usually kick off with when we're working with clients. And I won't go over all six of the questions, but the first question is what is the problem we're trying to solve? What is the problem we are trying to solve? And it has been amazing to see how much just asking that one question, forget about the other five, can just like take the blinders off of people and, and have lead to these amazing epiphanies where people just say, oh my gosh, why did we not see that? Why do Absolutely. You know, we, we find people are often creating a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. You know, people want to be seen to be doing stuff. So they start making things, crafting things. And then when you ask that question, they go, well, actually, there's no problem. So why are you making that? And, and a great example, I was within a, a big UK bank a couple of years ago, being brought in to help them look at some strategic deliverables, deliverables that they were doing. And they'd given me a very nice weighty document the day before to take away and look at before we did the workshop. And I took it on that night, read it, came back in the next morning and I taught them think, write, share, one of our tools and also the six strategic questions. 
So I said, right, everybody, what's the problem? This this strategic document that we're about to release to a global audience on Monday is trying to solve. And they all took it in turns to write down what their answer was. And then we went round one at a time and shared it. And Bob gave his answer. And then Susan gave her answer. Then Tim gave his. And each one was different to the last. And each face became more confused as they kept revealing. And we finished with eight different answers. And they're all shocked and looked at each other. I said, I'm not surprised. I said, can I ask you one more question? Who's actually read this document and I held up this big meaty tomb? And I'll tell you the answer. I said, none of you have, because you wouldn't have given eight different solutions. I said, because I read it last night and I read eight different documents. What you've done is created your own document and sandwiched them together to create a single document and called it a strategy. It's not. It brings no clarity. It actually brings chaos and confusion. And they stopped right there. We didn't even have to look at the rest of the problems and the questions. And then we cancelled the next two days of strategic thinking and we went back to the drawing board to go, right, what are we actually trying to solve for here? And then it took a half day to work it out and then we rewrote the strategic directive. But just an absolute game-changing question that stops people in their tracks. And it's amazing. Absolutely. We were working with another client in the United States a few years ago. I can't say the name of the company, but it was a... a a, a very large company, household household name company, and we were using the six strategic questions. And they were analyzing this plan that had been put forward by one of their smaller business units. And the plan was to create a online exchange for themselves and their, their competitors to trade resources within their, their industry. And it seemed like a great plan. But when the folks that we were working with, because we never do this stuff ourselves, we're, we're just leading their team through an analysis of this. When they started looking at their version of the weighty tome, as we say in America, <laughs> um, they, they said, you know, look, this is a really interesting plan. It's a good plan. It makes a lot of sense to do this exchange, except for one thing, which is that this entire business is going away because of regulatory changes in a couple of years. And setting up this exchange is going to cost us almost as much money as we're going to make off of the exchange during the two years that it's running or a year and a half by the time it gets up and running. So is this trip really necessary? And I posed the question, you know, you know, so I said, think about the question we're asking. What is the problem we're trying to solve? And they thought about it and they said, well, actually, even though the document says the problem we're trying to solve is how to create this exchange to, to, to uh, uh, trade this resource within our industry, really the problem that the folks who developed this plan are trying to solve is how to keep them in business, their business unit in business, long enough for them to polish up their resumes and find new jobs before this entire business goes away. <laughs> And so really, we're just subsidizing a part of our business that we probably should just trim off and use these resources to, to, to develop part of our business that's mm -hmm. not going away in two years. And so these types of questions, that's what it's about. Clarity. Clarity is so important. It, it is. It is. So if you're out there listening today and you're not sure... You're going down a path where you see no end to, just ask. Just stop what you're doing. Look around. You'll probably see other people thinking the same. 
and, and then we go to that point where we think it's a stupid question. And I've been in rooms of hundreds of people and I'm the only guy sticking my hand up asking the question. And I think it might be a stupid question, but I didn't care. I need to know the answer. And then afterwards, loads of other people go, oh yeah, I had that question too. But nobody puts their hand up and asks. But everybody's querying why, what does this mean? Where are we going with this? They don't have the clarity. So I think that that first C is absolutely essential. So if you're out there unsure, just ask, go and find out. Don't keep barreling forward if you're unaware. And you brought up something earlier that I want to come back to, Marcus, which is Simon Sinek and, and, and the importance of your why, which I love. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek's work on this. And, and that is all about finding clarity too, right? Why are we doing what we do? And it's such a powerful thing because as Simon Sinek talks about, most organizations focus on what they are doing. Better organizations figure out, focus on how they're doing it. And the really successful companies, the companies that everyone admires are the ones that focus on their why, why we are doing what we are doing and don't lose sight of it. Because as Simon Sinek says, every company starts with a why. The problem is that most companies quickly forget about their why and move into the how or the what. So he uses the example of the computer industry, you know, using Apple versus a company like Dell versus, you know, a generic, you know, computer company. Back in the day when, when personal computers first took off, there were hundreds of companies making personal computers. And most of them were focused on the what. We make mm -hmm. personal computers. You want to buy one. But if that's what you do, if you make personal computers, then you're just creating all you have is a commodity that's fungible, that is totally indistinguishable from anyone else's product. And the only thing that you have as a, as a competitive advantage is price. You've got to cut your price to something lower than everyone else's if you want to, if you want to get their business. Then you got better companies like Dell that said, we're going to focus on our how. Yeah, we make personal computers just like all these other companies, but here's the difference between us and them. You can configure your personal computer any way you want it. And this was a revolutionary thing at the time. You can configure your personal computer any way you want it. We will build it for you exactly the way you want it, and we'll get it to you within 72 hours. That was a big game changer. For Dell, differentiated itself from all these other PC manufacturers because it was focusing on its how. But then there's Apple, which is a, playing at a whole different level. And in those days, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, they were focused on the why. Why are we even doing this? And their why was something along the lines of, because we believe that technology should be elegant, should be beautiful, and should be easy to use. And it wasn't about computers. It wasn't about how we make computers. It was about the customer. It was about the end user again. What do they want? And Steve Jobs famously said, I want this, this device should be as easy to use as a bicycle. That once you've learned how to use it, you don't even, it just becomes part of your life. Yeah. I mean, Jobs had it so right, Bryce, didn't he? And it goes back to, you know, analysis of the words, personal computer, understanding the personal aspect of that. And that's what Apple has got nailed down. And goes back to those engineers you talked about earlier about the PDA. They considered the customer, the personal aspects. 
And if you don't put people at the heart of what you're doing, if you don't provide that clarity to those individuals supporting those people, then you're going to get a mess. You're going to have confusion. You're going to create chaos. But if you get it right, look at the harmonization that we've seen in organizations like Apple and Amazon, who are absolutely crystal clear on why they're doing what they do, who they're doing it for, and how they can take that forward across the whole organization and influence the customer base they're serving. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about the mess that you get, Marcus, when you don't have that clarity. Again, I'll use Ford as an example because it's a company I spent a long time covering as a journalist and wrote my first book about. And before Alan Mulally was hired as the CEO of Ford back in the end of 2006, Ford had no idea what it stood for. It was a schizophrenic company. So what do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, you had the the CEO and chairman, Bill Ford Jr., the great grandson of Henry Ford on television, talking about how Ford was going to become the greenest automaker in the world. And on the other hand, all of the company's profits at the time were coming from big trucks and SUVs. So the company was saying that it was going to become green and build more hybrids than Toyota, but it was plowing money into building bigger, more gas-guzzling SUVs. And in fact, at the time, Ford had the worst fleet fuel economy rating of any auto, major automaker in the world. And so how do, you, how, do you, how do you do your job as an engineer, as an, any employee, if you, if, you, if you don't even know what you're working towards? What is our real goal here? So Alan famously came in end of 2006, had been the president of Boeing Commercial Airlines, didn't know anything about the automobile industry. And before he even set about formulating his plan on how to turn Ford around, which was heading for bankruptcy at the time, he said, job one is figuring out our why. What are we doing this for? Who are we doing this for? And he didn't know the answer because no one at Ford can answer that question anymore. So what he, what he guessed was that Ford had known the answer to that back in the early part of the 20th century when Ford was the apple of the day. It really was. I mean, Henry Ford was the Steve Jobs of the, of, of the first half of the 20th century. Every time Ford released a new product, people would line up, would camp out on the sidewalk the day beforehand to see what it was in showrooms, just the way they did for iPhones, you know, mm-hmm. a century later. And so Alan said, well, obviously they knew what they stood for back then. They knew why they were doing things. So he had the archivist every day, his first few weeks on the job, bring him a box of stuff. He said, I don't care. They said, what do you want to see? He said, I don't care. I just want to see how this company looked when Henry Ford ran it. And so they brought him boxes of minutes from meetings, letters, advertisements, anything that, 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 you know, that they would pull off the shelves. And he spent about two weeks going through this before he found what he was looking for. And then one day he opened a box and there on the top was a big advertisement And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about. And this ad, which Henry Ford took out in the Saturday Evening Post back in 1924, as you see, if you look at it, it has what I presume back in 1924 was an idyllic image of smoking factories stretching out as far as the eye could see and freeways filled with bumper-to-bumper cars and this young couple with their Model A standing, looking wistfully over it. It wasn't that image that captured Alan's imagination. It's the 
the big headline at the top, opening the highways for all mankind. That was Ford's why. Opening the highways for all mankind. And then if you read the first line of the text, it says, behind everything that we do at Ford Motor Company is this abiding belief that riding on the people's highway should be within easy reach of all the people. Wow. Boom. I mean, what is that why? That why is democratizing technology. We don't build cars. We open the highways to all mankind. And so when Alan saw that, he had this thing blown up into a huge, I'll put a picture in the show notes that you can see what I'm talking about. He had this blown up into this huge mural that he hung in the hallway outside of his office. He had copies of this given to all the senior executives at Ford. And he said, this is why we are doing what we are doing. When we were a great company, when we were the apple of the day, we had a why, and this was it. Opening the highways to all mankind, democracy, democratizing technology. And from now on, every decision we make is going to be made through the lens of, does this help us achieve this why? It's incredible, isn't it? Just the power. And I know it's your favorite question, why? But yeah, it's such a simple word. We all use it as kids, overly so, if you ask our parents. And I just think it's amazing. So, wow, we've been talking about the first C. We're not going to have time to talk about any more today because I want to talk about something else in a minute. But we're going to make sure we come back to the two C's that we've not covered, capability and culture, next time we get together, Bryce. I think we got two more episodes there, Marcus. We'll do the, we'll do one on one on one on capability and one on culture because because man, we could talk about culture alone all day. I know, absolutely. Because remember what Peter Drucker said. I do indeed. Culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. This is shown as well what's in, the importance of these things. You know, getting those that C right, whichever C it is, and we'll talk about the other two more. It's worth taking the time to consider where you're at with it. Well, all right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back. You pick which bias you want to talk about this. Oh, I've got one lined up just for you. Are you a red team thinker? Are you the person in the room who is always asking the tough questions? Do you see what others don't? Do you find yourself muttering, I told you so, too often after plans have gone awry because nobody listened to your good idea? If so, then you might be. Take our free assessment and find out. There's a link to it in the notes below. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, Marcus, you have a cognitive bias for us this week. What is your cognitive bias of the week? I do. I want to talk about a phenomenon that is most impactful in a realm we focus on a lot, decision-making. And the cognitive Don't keep us bias, in suspense. I know. Status quo bias. Status quo bias oh, for sorry. those of us on this side. Status of the quo bias, said Mr. Hoffman. <laughs> God, you guys. Oh, absolutely. That's a great one. I so, what is... it, can, can you say it properly, though, for me? Because you've got a, a beautiful English accent. Go on. Yes, please tell us what status quo. Oh, I can't. No, no. Please tell stay, us what stay. status quo bias is, Mr. Dimity. I'll convert you yet, sir. Go ahead. Take it away. Well, status quo bias is uh, refers to. The fact, simply put, that most of us don't like to rock the boat. That in any organization, most people would rather keep doing 
what they've always been doing, even if it's not working, then try something new that could potentially work because people don't like change. And that is just, again, it's something that we are wired that way because there's a good reason for it. If we really love change, if everybody loved change as much as I love change, then we'd always be changing course and we'd never get to our destination. So there's some value in it. But the problem is, is that it's so deeply hardwired into our brains to avoid change and to go with the status quo to keep doing what we've been doing, that we keep doing it even if it's not working, right? And there's so many examples of companies that you can think of that do that, that just keep doing what they've always done, even when the new technology comes out, even when the market changes. I don't know. Can you think of an example, Marcus? Yeah, an example, Bryce. You know, this is all about better the devil you know, isn't it? And one that springs to mind for me is Blockbuster and what they did or didn't do when we saw the rise of Netflix. And I know you know much more about that than me. So, Oh, well, it's one of my favorite stories. I mean, everybody, I think, knows how Reed Hastings uh, came up with the idea for, for Netflix. If you don't, it's, it's pretty awesome. It was it was a marital spat involving an overdue DVD. He was at the gym in, I think it was Los Angeles, uh, down south from me, where I'm at now. And back in the day, you know, he, he uh, what, what was the movie? I'm trying to remember. Can't remember what movie it was. Some blockbuster film, pun intended. Um, he, he got a call while he was at the gym. He was on the treadmill and he got a call from his video store saying, hey, you didn't return the movie and now you owe $10, $20 in late fees, whatever it was. And he's, and, he, and he's like, fine, I'll bring it back. And he, and he got off the phone and he was sitting there on the treadmill and he's like, this is so stupid. You know, I forgot to bring back my friggin' DVD. And now when I go home tonight, my wife's going to be pissed at me because I just got us fined by the video store because I forgot to bring back the DVD. And in this world that we live in today, why do I have to go to the store and bring back the DVD? It doesn't even make any sense. And why do I have to pay these fines? Well, the reason he had to pay these fines, by the way, is because by that point, most of the profits that companies like Netflix were making were from the fines, not from running the, the movies. Yeah. So he, he's having this conversation with himself. He's in the gym. And he says, you know what? Why can't it be like the gym? I pay whatever I pay, $20, $30 a month, and I can come to the gym whenever I want. And if I don't come to the gym, that's cool. If I come to the gym every day, that's cool. I just pay my money. I know how much to charge. It's, it's built into my budget. I don't have to think about it. Why can't videos be the same way? And that's where he came up with the idea of Netflix. And, and when he came up with the idea of Netflix, and again, for you, for you young people, Netflix started out not as a streaming service, but as a company that would mail you DVDs that you could watch at your leisure, keep as long as you want and return them when you're done and they give you a new one. So that's how he came up with the, the original idea for Netflix. And when he came up with the idea, he and his partners built the, the company and they said, this is pretty cool. But you know, they said, we think this is the future, but building this into a whole industry is going to be really tough. So there's guys who know how to do this. They've already got a huge company. They've already got a huge number of employees. Let's go and just say, hey, you know, we came up with this cool idea. 
We'll sell you the company. We'll help you figure out how to do this. But you guys can take it from here. We know the future isn't going to be mailing DVDs. It's going to be streaming. And we've got some ideas on how to do that. We can help you figure it out. So he and his business partner flew down to Texas where Blockbuster's headquarters was and said, you know, we'll sell you the whole thing for $50 million. And they were literally laughed out of the room. They were literally laughed out of the room. Fun fact, when Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy, Netflix was worth $24 billion. Wow. And it was only a few years later. But the reason they got laughed out of the room, status quo bias. Mm -hmm. They were so certain that they just needed to tweak their existing business model and they'd get it sorted out. And so what did they do instead of buying Netflix, by the way? They decided to put candy on the end caps. That was their brilliant idea, was because the way it boosts revenues as people were starting to leave Blockbuster and sign up for Netflix was to get more, shake them down for more money. And how do you do that? You put candy at the eye level of their children so that mom and dad can't get out of a Blockbuster with also buying a bunch of overpriced yeah. gummy worms. Standard supermarket checkout style, isn't it? Everywhere you go. Yeah, but here was the problem with that. What did that do? That just drove mo more people to Netflix because mm -hmm. now going to Blockbuster was a real pain in the hindquarters for parents. Yeah, yeah. And cost a lot more than they planned for when they got there. Yeah, that's just a great example, isn't it, from business price with Blockbuster. But it, it happens all the time in so many different places. And I know one thing that triggers me when we're out working with people, clients, historically, when I've been working in organizations where I'll say to somebody, he said, hey, why are you doing it this way? And they'll turn around to me and use that dreaded phrase, because we've always done it that way, Marcus. And I was That's like, the way we've oh, always done it around here. Yep. And straight away, I'm like, okay, okay, let's have some questions, shall we? And I remember years ago, my first tour as a junior officer, uh, back when the North of England was all fields and we had black and white TVs. I graduated. <laughs> no, wait a second. No, wait a second. <laughs> you are not that old. I know. I'm no, I'm messing with you. Do I look that old? But anyway, I go on my first squadron and I'm doing my job and I'm asking lots of questions. And the sort of officers above me, not the senior officers, but the guys working above me have been around a while. Apparently they weren't enjoying this. So I get dragged into my boss's office and he's like, Marcus, come in. He goes, uh, seems you're a bit of a social gadfly young man. And I didn't know what a gadfly was back then. And there was no internet at the time to so quickly look it up. And I thought he meant a social butterfly. And uh, I said, if you say so, sir, what do you mean? He goes, uh, I think you've got a few people's backs up. And I was like, okay, uh, do you want to expand on that? Because I'm a bit curious. It says, uh, people saying you're rocking the boat. Oh, and I'm like, ah, okay. Right, so this will be because... I asked a few questions and the response I got to the questions was, we've always done it this way, Marcus. And I figured that when I went through my military officer training, the whole purpose of being an officer, being a leader or aspiring leader was to challenge things, was to see things differently. And if they weren't being done as safely or as effectively as they possibly could be, then we should challenge and look to do them differently. Surely that's what we're here to do. And especially when we're playing with, very high cost equipment, airplanes, people's lives, then if I see something that I don't think is right or I think could be done better, then surely 
I should step up and offer that as a question first, but then obviously provide a solution. But it turns out, I don't know what your experience is, Bryce, but people don't tend to like that because it often incurs a bit of extra work for them or maybe calls them out about something they've been hiding behind. As you said at the beginning, the the fog of BS that people you know, put out in front provides that smokescreen. And I like to see through smoke screens. I don't like absolutely. And challenging the status quo is how you how you bring clarity to go back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, but the flip side, yeah, it's hard to do something new, to do something different, but it's so powerful. I'm gonna give another example from the automobile industry, another one of my favorite companies, Toyota. What is Toyota famous for? Toyota is famous for continuous improvement. Continuous improvement. Toyota never ceases to improve on its products. They're never satisfied with what they've got, no matter how successful it is. I will tell you one of the most amazing business presentations I have ever seen. So it was back in 2004, and every year the global auto industry has this big conference, at least they did before COVID, in northern Michigan, this beautiful vacation destination where they bring executives and leaders of the auto industry from all over the world, from all the companies, come there and discuss the state of the industry, where it's at and where it's going. And every year, a couple of CEOs are invited to give keynote presentations about their company. And in 2004, one of those keynotes was Toyota. And Fujio Cho was the head of Toyota at the time. And he got up on the stage and he gave this kind of dull but good presentation, PowerPoint presentation, showing how Toyota was achieving or exceeding all of its targets in every area, in every market of the world. And it's impressive because none of the other automakers were doing that at the time. But then when he finished, he I'll never forget this, took his glasses off, folded them, looked out at the audience for a long minute. And he said, and that is why we must rethink our entire business. Wow. I mean, that was so powerful because most of the people in that room from the American automobile industry were figuring, trying to their hardest to figure out how to catch up with Toyota, where it was at. And here he's just said that despite the fact that we are so successful, we are going to try to reinvent our business and talk about leveling up. And what Chosan went on to do was say that this is the time for us to challenge ourselves. This is the time for us to rethink our business because we are successful. And it's better to do this now while we're firing on all cylinders than to wait and get complacent and to get sloppy and, and, and then be forced to yeah. rethink our business because we're sliding. That is a powerful, powerful example of what happens when you are willing to challenge the status quo. Uh, absolutely brilliant, Bryce. And that, that whole continuous improvement that Toyota you know, put forth at the forefront of all their work, Kaizen, they call it, that's accepting that there's no such thing as best practice. And when you think you've got it, what you do, you deliberately disrupt yourself and you push forward again and try to continually improve. And that's exactly the sort of companies that are surviving today. They're adapting and then they're thriving because they're critically thinking about the scenarios they're facing into 
they're looking ahead, they're future-proofing themselves, and they're not sat. I mean, we had a great conversation with the client last week. I introduced them to the term <laughs> fat, dumb, and happy. They're not just sat there going on the sofa, hey, all's well, what could possibly go wrong? And then, boom, a wrecking ball comes in unseen and turns your world upside down and throws you into chaos. Continuous improvement, always looking ahead, looking at how you can adapt to disrupt yourself. And, hey, it's better to disrupt yourself before someone else does. At least you're prepared, you're aware, and you're continually evolving and adapting with the environment. And when we talk about the VUCA world... And don't forget hyperconnectivity, too. Add that H, Absolutely. You know, then you have to be adapting. You have to be constantly horizon scanning and, you know, as we say, duck and dive, bob and weave. Keep, you know, shifting those punches that are coming at you on a daily basis as a business, as an individual, and keep moving forward. You know, you've got to be like a shark in this day and age. If you if you stop, you die. You've got to keep moving forward, seeing what's out there, and as Toyota says, continually improve as you go forward. It's the way we need to be. Absolutely, Marcus. And, you know, think about it. The world has changed so much in the past couple of years. It has changed so much in the past couple of months that if you are continuing to just do what you've always done, you're going to go off a cliff because the 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 the, the, the road has has fallen into the ocean. You need to take a detour now. And that's why status quo bias, yeah. even though there's value in consistency. There's danger in unchecked consistency, in not asking yourself, is this road still going to take me to where I want to go? Or has the landscape shifted? Has the fault lines of my operating environment created a big change that I need to go right, go left, as you said, bob and weave in order to get to where my destination is? Yeah, absolutely, Bryce. And that's that's this ability, isn't it, to understand your situation personally, professionally, you know, environmentally and globally. As you said, the, the rate of pace of change now is just insane. And if you keep doing what you've always done, you know, as we always know, what got you where you are today won't get where you need to be going forward. And we're seeing this a lot in the executive world, you know, all those skills and the experiences we have that we've taken us through the 80s, 90s, noughties were great. You know, they weren't wrong. They weren't bad. They were just great for the time. But things have changed so much now. We all have to continually adapt and evolve. And that includes learning. We have to keep le- – every day is a school day for us. We know this. You know, continuously learning, seeking out different experiences, different opportunities, but continually scanning the horizon. Because as you said, <laughs> warning, cliff ahead. And if you want to conform with the lemmings, we know why the lemmings go, don't they? One by one. And then next minute you're airborne going, how did I get here? Because I wasn't challenging. I was following the crowd. And if you're citing these false harmonies that we often see in organizations, group thinks the norm, status quo bias is everywhere. That's a dangerous place to be in the world we are today. It is indeed. It is indeed. Well, hey, folks, we have had another great conversation. We'll have another Wonderful conversation next week with a very cool guest. Not going to say who they are. It's a surprise as always, but I hope that you will join us. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. 
There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? Wins.